Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 8th of July 2019 and this is episode 121. On today's programme, I talk to Dr Brian Hall, programme leader at the University of Salford, about his book on communications and operations on the Western Front during the Great War. This has been published by Cambridge University Press. I spoke to Brian from his home in Salford. Brian, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start about telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and and communications in particular? Sure. Um, Well, I'm presently lecturer in contemporary military history uh, at the University of Salford, uh, where for the last three years I've been the program leader for the BA in contemporary military and international history. Uh, I suppose I've had a lifelong interest in history, military history in particular, but my fascination uh, with the First World War uh, was sparked by a a module uh, of the conflict that I did uh, as part of my master's degree uh, many years ago. And I was struck by just how prominent a role communications played in shaping the course uh, and the outcome of nearly every First World War battle that I read about, but also equally amazed that no historian had really examined the subject of communications uh, in significant detail, certainly not since sort of the early 1920s when you had the publication of the, uh, the, the semi-official history of the, the Royal Engineers Signal Service, uh, the Signal Service being, of course, the, uh, the precursor to the Royal Corps of Signals that was formed shortly after the, uh, the conflict ended. So I then set out to sort of fill that gap by doing a PhD, which I successfully completed in 2010, uh, and then I set to work transforming uh, the thesis into a book, uh, which required a lot of additional research uh, and writing. And But eventually the book was published um, by Cambridge University Press uh, in the summer of 2017. So why do you think a book was needed on this? I think that first and foremost, the book, well, I hope, sheds a significant light on a on a very important, um, though neglected and uh, frequently misunderstood aspect of the uh, the British Expeditionary Forces, the BEF's operations during the First World War, provides much needed uh, correction uh, and or clarification, I suppose, on exactly how communications influenced British military operations on the Western Front, how uh, and to what extent the army responded successfully to the communication challenges it faced, uh, and, and ultimately what this tells us more broadly uh, about the British army uh, during the First World War as a as an institution. And when we talk about communications, obviously we, we've got mobile phones, text and all those wonderful gadgets today. And we talk about communications in the context of the book and the First World War and the BEF. What exactly are we on about? Communications, I suppose when when one thinks about military communications and particularly during the First World War, I suppose that the first images that pop into into one's head are images of telephones, flag signalling, semaphore, and of course, um, I suppose, carrier pigeons, uh, good old Good old speckled Jim uh, from, from 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 Blackadder. I suppose that I got that everywhere I went. So I can remember doing research in the United States and having, you know, customs officials there asking me about my business. And when I explained to them that I was researching uh, communications, first of all communications, um, he sort of looked at me and sort of said, "You mean carrier pigeons?" And I sort of said, "Well, yes." Uh, uh, you know, just to cut a long story short, but in a way, 
I suppose the means of communication, um, the methods of communication were an integral component of the army's communication system. But as I try and argue in the book, I think the system, the communication system was much more than, say, uh, a telephone line between point A and point B. It was a far more diverse, intricate and all compassing system, one that involved not just the methods of communication, but the the internal processes employed for handling, processing, storing that information, the infrastructure that was put in place to develop and maintain communications within the army, and most importantly, I would argue, the people who operated and used the system, so chiefly the, the signalers themselves, who they were, what they uh, or where they came from, uh, and what their jobs entailed. Um, so for me, communications was was more than just a, a you know a simple link from point A to point B. It was a, a much much bigger system. And what communications problems did the BEF face in operations on the Western Front? The measure of any communication system, you can do so by uh, looking at um, you know the speed of the system, uh, the integrity, uh, its ability to carry the messages, or so the capacity of that system, and I suppose the there's a security issue as well. And I suppose with all four of those criteria, uh, speed, integrity, capacity, and security, the BEF's communication system, they were all compromised during the course of the war, uh, creating problems which served to undermine the, the efficiency of, of, of British uh, operations. I suppose in very basic terms, the fundamental problem was that the means of communication available to commanders had not managed to reach a similar state of maturity as had the you know the weapon systems that they supported uh, the destruction of telephone and telegraph lines the fragility of very early wireless or radio sets uh, the vulnerability of visual signaling and message carriers often resulted in sort of the absence of a smooth and rapid transfer of accurate information so essential um, for for the conduct of um, successful operations in modern warfare. As such, vital decisions, whether that be committing reserves or calling back an artillery barrage, were often made too late or not at all. And consequently, the momentum of uh, the attacking troops slowly ground to a halt. Any opportunities to exploit uh, initial successes was lost. And the Germans given ample time to plug the gaps in their line and prevent these attacks from, from breaking through. I mean, it has to be said, though, that these were problems that plagued all the armies of the era. It was not just a British problem. The French, the Germans, later the Americans, you know, they all had to contend with these these issues of, of communications uh, and the problems for command and control. And what I think is particularly interesting is how and in what ways these armies responded to try and overcome these challenges. I suppose I've, I've managed to sort of fill the uh, the gaps with regards to the British army. But what I'm now working on is is how the other armies responded to these, starting with uh, the Americans. So I, I'm hoping to get some really sort of interesting uh, comparisons between uh, the systems that were employed by those armies and, and those of the British. Now, you talk about the solutions that they uh, implemented to tackle some of these communication problems. What were they and how did they develop over the war? The British sought numerous ways to resolve these problems. As we've sort of already discussed, developing and integrating new and more efficient communications technology was certainly one uh, one way. Wireless development, uh, for example, came on in leaps and bounds between 1914 and 1918. Working with their uh, their French and, of course, their, uh, later the American uh, allies, the British by sort of late 1917, certainly 1918, have been experimenting and are finally employing 
new continuous wave wireless sets for use within the artillery, uh, the Royal Flying Corps, later the RAF, and of course the Tank Corps. Uh, and these provided far more reliable, secure, uh, and flexible um, wireless communication uh, compared to the, the Spark sets, um, which um, the British uh, and all armies, I suppose, had been using up until that point. Development in continuous wave uh, wireless sets is something that the Germans, interestingly, never managed to achieve. So it was quite a quite an achievement on, on the part of the British and, of course, the French and the, and the Americans as well. I suppose besides employing the newest sort of communication devices, the British also sought to make uh, the most effective use of them, um, chiefly by developing communications doctrine. March 1917 sees the publication of the Army's first authoritative communications doctrine manual, SS-148, Forward into Communication and Battle, which sort of lays down the the principles or the guidelines uh, guidelines of, of the best communications practice. And one of the central elements of this best practice was that there needed to be a communication system with an element of uh, uh, what in modern uh, terminology we would call redundancy being one of its key features. So in other words, ranking the means of communication in the order in which they were to be used, uh, ensuring that there were multiple channels through which information could be sent, uh, and, and making sure that there was always an alternative or a backup should should that method fail. I suppose third and finally, besides the technological and the doctrinal solutions, the BEF also sought to harness the skills of the civilian communication experts, uh, most notably the the engineers, the telegraphists, and the telephonists of the of, of the GPO, the General Post Office which at the time um, sort of held the monopoly uh, in terms of the communications infrastructure uh, within the UK. And my, my research shows that uh, you know, just over 40% of the signal services personnel were recruited from the GPO. And they brought with them specific skills, new methods, new equipment that helped the British uh, to gradually develop a stronger, more flexible and, and, and ultimately more robust communication system. So I think those three elements, the technological, uh, the doctrinal, and the, the personnel are, are, are three of the ways in which they, they sought to um, um, resolve those problems. So, Brian, what does that just mean actually in operational terms? I mean, for instance, what would a commander of an infantry unit or an artillery unit in 1918 um, find was different compared to 1914? Well, I think um, there's no doubt that you know the tenuous communications were a persistent thorn, a thorn in the side of British operations uh, right throughout the war. I mean, even by 1918, you know, uh, um, the British battlefield commanders uh, are still having to wrestle with enormous communication difficulties. But I suppose as much as they were a major cause of the problem, communications were also a key part of that solution, um, certainly to unlocking the deadlock in 1918. And this is something that certainly up until recently, anyway, hasn't hasn't been sufficiently emphasized by historians. And as my book argues, although far from perfect, communications were critical in enabling British commanders in the summer and autumn of 1918 to coordinate the movement of their forces in semi-mobile operations. I suppose in, you know, by 1918, not only was the, the BEF generally more proficient in the art of waging modern warfare, it also possessed a, a more robust flexible and sophisticated communication system capable of supporting those advances. So my book essentially argues that if we compare and contrast 1914 and 1918, I think communications were a a double-edged sword for the British. On the one hand, the technological shortcomings and vulnerabilities of the various means of communication uh, available impaired 
tactical mobility and operational tempo, even in 1918 to some extent. And yet, on the other hand, an improved communication system facilitated the the degree of inter-arm cooperation involving infantry, tanks, artillery and aircraft that ultimately played an important part in enabling the BEF to defeat the German army in the summer and autumn of 1918. So how did the British learn? Um, how did What sort of mechanisms made them develop their communication systems? Um, I mean, this is... Uh, the way in which um, armies learned, not just what they learned, but how they learned, uh, is of course a you know a hot topic amongst uh, uh, military historians at the moment. I suppose, in, in general terms, like much uh, of, of the rest of the BEF's activities, you know the the communicators sort of learned mainly through a, a very long and, and bloody process of trial and error, in conjunction with what other recent historians have argued. My research sort of reveals that the, the BEF's methods for learning were far more diverse uh, and multifaceted than hitherto thought. I mean, there were formal sort of vertical approaches to learning, uh, whether that be derived from information coming up from commanders at the front or whether it be sort of top down, in which sort of best practice was gleaned from you know recent operations and then encapsulated in sort of written doctrine, notably the the SS training manuals that I mentioned earlier. And then that, of course, was disseminated uh, in order to, uh, I suppose, facilitate more consistency across the whole of the BEF. But there were also, you know, there was also ample scope within the army for uh, what you might call non-formal or horizontal learning methods, sort of commanders, signal units, sharing knowledge with each other. Crucially, I think the army's underlying ethos sort of fostered a a diverse, flexible and quite pragmatic learning approach. Uh, And it's this, I think, that enabled it to successfully adapt its communication system to the challenges uh, of of the Western Front. And what lessons do you think we can take from your book? What might surprise some people, it might not surprise others, but I think what might surprise some people is is the fact that despite the passage of time and and the enormous uh, technological improvements in modern communications, uh, data processing, information technologies, modern armies are still having to overcome very similar problems uh, that their predecessors over 100 years ago were trying to get to grips with as well. Problems with regards to information overload, you know, the the fog of war, the breakdown of of communication, problems with security, communications being compromised. You know, these these were all problems that commanders of the the First World War were having to deal with and and commanders today are, are still wrestling with. So I think that my book, I hope, would sort of resonate with with current practitioners, sort of highlighting some of the the building blocks upon which military communications doctrine and practice today is based. If there is a lesson that could be gleaned from my book, then I suppose it would be that given the varied and I suppose the ever-expanding roles that the British Army today is having to perform or prepare for, a flexible and pragmatic approach, similar to that that the, the, the BEF of the First World War adopted, is likely though I suppose not guaranteed, to result in a more effective communication system capable of adapting to the you know the variety of 21st century challenges. And finally, where can people learn more about your research? Obviously buy the book. Um, <laughs> it is a little pricey, um, that's for sure. But uh, I mean, you can get some good secondhand copies uh, uh, going uh, um, um, from f- from bookshops online. I've published a number of uh, journal articles as well. Uh, and I have contributed a rather interesting chapter looking specifically at tank communications during the First World War. Uh, and that was in a book edited by my 
colleague, uh, Professor Alaric Searle, that was published by uh, Hellion in 2015. I think that might be a bit more in people's price range, maybe. Um, but I've also, um, you know, over the last couple of years, I've given, um, you know, talks, various Western Front Association branches, and I'd be more than happy, you know, to do so again uh, um, elsewhere. So if, if, if people would, would go to the University of Salford website and, and, and look at my details, or if then, uh, you know, I would urge uh, anybody interested, you know, don't hesitate to get in touch with me and I'm sure we could work something out. Brian, thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>